safe places. Please open up your Bibles to the book of Titus. Let's uh, go to God in prayer. Dear Father, Lord, I come to you this morning. Pray that you will open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. To your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Well, I'm concerned, as you probably are, that in our day and age, uh, Christianity is made light of. You don't have to go far to see that. Uh, just go to the Internet. You'll see the ridicule, the mocking, the scorn that's ascribed to Christianity. And if you're like me, that really upsets me, and I hope that upsets you and grieves you a lot because that is not right. Now, we just saw recently... Um, as, as recently as about two weeks ago, the whole Willow Creek situation fall apart. You know, it's never, never ending, is it? You know? And um, so when that happens, our witness, our corporate witness as a body and our individual witness is marred. It's affected greatly. Uh, just last week, I was, I was at an event and... I got to overhear this conversation, and I actually asked the man who was uh, speaking this way if I could use this as a sermon illustration this morning. He said, go ahead. He was, he was a non-Christian, a non-believer, and he, I just sensed he found great joy in sharing a story with about four or five people that he knew of a so-called born-again Christian who had cheated on his wife and left his wife and committed adultery. And that, you know, that is typical. That is what people think about Christianity. We're a bunch of hypocrites. And we are in many ways. And I'm not going to lie. We need to work on things. But I bring that out just to point to us the taste, the sense that that culture has about so-called Christianity or what Christianity looks like in their eyes. But on the other side, so many in the church want to be cool, to be relevant, to be seeker-friendly, to come down to their level so we can reach them. Since when? I mean, where do we ever get the idea that you can win the world if we become like them? You know, it doesn't say that in Scripture necessarily. When there is true salvation in the life of somebody, you know what, guys? It is a radical event. It is radical. There's no wondering if there's been a transformation that's taken place. It's not an add-on. It makes a difference, and people take notice. Our, our greatest platform for evangelism is simply a transformed life. If you think with me, and don't turn there, First Peter 3.15, a lot of us know that. We might have memorized it as kids. It says, but sanctify the Lord Christ in your hearts and be ready to give an answer to those who ask you for the hope that lies within you. And stop there. Two verbs there. Sanctify the Lord Christ. Sanctify means to set apart, to make holy, to be hallowed, like in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Live in such a way that the Lord Christ literally is on his pedestal where he belongs and then the other verb is be ready to give an answer because if you do the first, the second one is bound to happen. If you 
set Christ in his rightful place on the pedestal in your life, guess what? You will have people approach you and say, what is going on? Something is different about you. If that doesn't happen, there's a problem. So let me ask you this as we get started. Have people, do people, come to you and ask you, what's different about you? Something is different about you. You act this way, you speak this way, you don't engage in this behavior. And I want to take a minute here just to ask you this. Has that happened and is it happening in your life? All right, think about it. Because that is really what the text in front of us is really all about. Listen, we are called to holiness. Holiness means taking serious what God says and living differently because of that truth. We are distinctly different than those around us, and the world should take notice of that. What does it look like to live radically different from those around us, even religious people? And you and I work with a lot of religious people. We should even stand out from among them, okay, if they're not uh, true believers. So really what we need to do, and let's sum up where we're going this morning, is what we teach, and frankly, a lot of people say this to me and to Russ and Terry, that the teaching we get here is really good. It's solid teaching, and I think that's why you come here, and I appreciate that, and you appreciate that. But what does it look like to match our teaching with our living, our teaching with our behavior? That is what the text before us in Titus will address this morning in a few minutes. So this is really self-examination time for all of us. I really hope you take the time, the opportunity while I'm speaking to examine yourself. Where do you fall here? Where do you, uh, what does your life look like? Um, and really, is there a difference in how you used to be? First Peter 4 says, you know, you used to hang around with these friends, First Peter 4, 1 to 4, and now you're different and they see a difference, and they mock you. They make fun of you like, hey, what happened to the fun Randy or the fun Tim or the fun? You know, they think you're no fun anymore, um, and they see a difference, and that's the point. Now, first, we are going to look at not the beginning of the passage first. We're going to start from near the end of the passage I'm going to be speaking on. Turn to, uh, to Titus 2, 11 to 14. This is really critical that we lay a foundation. Lay a foundation meaning, why did Jesus even come to this planet? Why did he come to this earth? Why did he bother to come? <clears throat> and I just want to touch on this in a quick fashion so that we, so we get our bearings here in the text. And I'll just read this real quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's a good starting point for the text. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous of good deeds. So just real quickly, the grace of God is an equivalent 
to the coming of Christ. The word grace is charis. It means gift. What greater gift is there than Christ? So that means Christ has appeared. He came to do two primary things. He brings us salvation to all kinds of people. He doesn't. We're not talking universal salvation, so don't get that idea here. He's talking about every race, every creed, like we looked at in Revelation this morning. You know, every tribe and tongue, and and uh, and people from uh, from every uh, area of the planet. But he also, number two, instructs us to live godly. So he brings salvation, and then he teaches us how to live godly. Uh, and then these lead to two, two uh, really different things. Re- he redeemed us, and he purified us. To redeem means to buy out of the slave market of sin. We were stuck in sin. Whether we knew it or not, we were slaves of sin. To purify us. And the result is so we would be zealous for good deeds. That's the end game. So so much of the time, we're afraid to preach and talk about good deeds because we don't want to confuse people and think we're teaching a social gospel or a works salvation. But we need to talk about good deeds because that phrase is used eight times in the book of Titus, in this tiny book of Titus. Uh, so, so good deeds revealed to us a lot, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So to summarize, Jesus came to this planet to purchase and to own a people who were called after his name, who were known for a distinct way of living. That is, they can actually say no to sin and its temptations and yes to obedience to God, and as a result, be radically different from the world around them. So that's what these verses uh, verses 11 to 14 say, this is why I wanted to use this as a, as a starting point. That's the overall goal of why uh, Jesus came to the earth. So now we're going to look at the specifics, and it's really fascinating. I've I got to be honest with you, I had a ball studying this text. I've been reading it for probably two months now since I knew I was going to be preaching today. And you, you miss out on on all the prep work that goes into preaching a sermon. We should make every one of you preach a sermon or teach a class, and then you'll see the joys of really digging into the scriptures, right? (laughs) All right. First is, so let's go back to the text, and I just want to give a quick overview of chapter 1, because if you don't have an overview of chapter 1, it'll be quick. Sorry if if my intro is too long, but it's needful. And just don't see it as an introduction. See it as a part of the sermon. <laughs> All right. In Titus 1, verses 1 to 4, he just uh, Paul's just laying a foundation. We're not going to spend a lot of time here because this is not the thrust of the uh, passage. But a few highlights. Paul is writing to his friend Titus, and the first question that came to mind is, why in the world is he being so formal? He knows Titus. It's like me, me writing to a friend and saying, Oh, thou Russ, this is my credibility. This is why I'm writing to you, because I need to know this. No, you'd say, Randy, just say, hi, Russ, how you doing, you know? But Paul is being really formal, and I'll show you why, okay? First, Paul and Titus worked together in Corinth as well as they were together at the, at the Jerusalem Council. We see that in Acts 15. So, and so they were friends, but there are three reasons why Paul is being so formal. One is to lend credibility. He does say right here in this text here, one to four, that he's an apostle. 
that is a stamp of approval. That's a stamp of, of, um, of authority, if you will. There were only a few apostles who ever walked this earth, and he was one of them. He's sent by God is what that word means, sent one. Second, he wrote this because he knew the Jewish audience there um, would, would see the, um, the similar greeting that he gives here. At the very beginning, he says, Paul, a bondservant of God. That's exactly the term that Moses used in Numbers 12 and many other places in the Old Testament. So if you're reading this, and you're a Jew, you're saying, wow, that's the same introduction that Moses used to you know, give himself or apply to himself in the Old Testament. So, all right, there's, there's something I need to pay attention to if you're a Jew in that audience. And thirdly, why is being so formal? Is because he knew that this letter was going to be passed around to the many churches on the Isle of Crete. He knew that the people would need to see that God had entrusted him, as he says right in the text there, with the teaching of this truth to them. And this teaching wasn't just the teaching of a young man named Titus. It really came from God originally. So that's why we have the formality here in 1 to 4. Okay, let's move on to verse 5. And this, this really is a clearer verse and explains why Paul left Titus on the Isle of Crete. In fact, how many people have been to the Isle of Crete here? Raise your hand. Mike and Debbie. All right, two people. And three. Okay, three. All right, do I see any other hands? No, I saw it on a uh, travel show at my father-in-law's house a couple of years ago. I saw, a, uh, I saw a thing on the Isle of Crete. And it is a beautiful place to go. Man, I want to go there someday. But um, So for you who have been there, congratulations. I'm kind of jealous. But... Paul left Titus on the Isle of Crete for one main reason, and it's in verse 5. He says, for this reason, okay, it doesn't take a Greek scholar to understand what he means here. I left you in Crete so that, purpose clause, that you would set in order what remains. Set in order what remains. So the first thing that came to mind, and when you read the Bible, when you study the Bible, put yourself in the text. You need to put yourself in the text. Don't just read it as some cold book, some archaic book that's not, not real, that really didn't happen, that don't involve real people. Okay, It really does. And so I'm thinking, okay, the first thing that came to mind is, Paul, thanks for the ministry opportunity. Crete has a bad reputation. We're going to look at this in a minute. Culturally and religiously, they have a really bad reputation. And Paul saw Titus at work in Corinth, and he knew that he was up to the task. And in God's sovereign plan, he said, okay, hey, Titus, I want you to uh, do this ministry here, take care of this problem here in Crete. Faithfulness always leads to more responsibility and more reward. So keep that in mind. So uh, something was broken. The idea here, real quickly, it just means it's like a broken bone set in order. It was used when, when a bone got broken and you put a splint on your arm or whatever or your collarbone or whatever. There was something broken on Crete. And he uses many illustrations. It's it's interesting. It's funny. It's not Luke writing this, who was a doctor, but there's many illustrations where he taps into the medical field. 
talks about hygiene and health and those things. Okay, so anyway, uh, he needs to set in order something that, that, is, that is out of order. And how he does this is very interesting, and I call this the godly pattern to follow, verses 6 to 9, the godly pattern to follow. These are the doctors who will set the broken bone. All right, that's how I put it. I'm just going to read this real quickly and comment on this real quickly as well. Verses 6 to 9. And appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious or always looking for a fight, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So as I read this, the first thing that came to mind is, where in the world is Titus going to find such men who qualify? If Crete is as bad as we know it is, it's going to be a challenge to find such qualified men. But I do want to say, just real quickly to sum up the qualifications for elder, pastor, shepherd, he has a good reputation. One who seeks, in 1 Timothy 3.1, it says he must have a desire first to serve in that office. So he must have a good reputation within and without the church, okay? outside the church as well as in the church. Second, his proven ground is the home with his wife and children. And, and I need to say this, where it says having children who believe, I, the elders here from our study firmly believe this means you've raised trustworthy children. They're not... They're not a bunch of drunks and rebellious like uh, the end of verse 6 say. So trustworthy kids, you've raised them well, because that's the control we do have in raising our kids to a point is raising trustworthy children. Third, he's faithful to his God in every aspect of life, this faithfulness. Fourth, and this is really important right here, he knows the word and can apply it to any situation that arises, whether it's to build up or to confront we, we at Fellowship Bible Church, we've always taken this very seriously when we're, we're considering to get a new elder here, um, or pastor. The first thing that we say is, when people have a problem in the church, is this man one person, the, I mean, one of few maybe, that they look to, to go to, to a biblical, you know, for, for advice, biblical advice for counsel? That should be, I think, a necessary part of being qualified as an elder. You are seen, you've got the reputation, as I said here, as a man who knows his Bible and who can give godly counsel, and you think to go to that person and know that you'll get the answer you need that God says right through his word. That's where we stand as a church. So... So the part of being an elder, pastor, shepherd, whatever you want to call us, is um, that you need to build up. People need to be built up. We all need encouragement. We all go through tough things in life. 
I know Misty and I have been through the ringer the last month and a half, two months. It's been amazing. But God gave us grace. But we still need to be encouraged. Everyone needs to be encouraged. We all go through. Life is tough. You've got jobs. You've got self-employment has its own problems. You have land clearing to deal with. You have, you have age issues. You have so many things. We all struggle. So we need to be built up in the faith and courage. And we try to do that Sunday night. But on the other side of the coin is not fun, but we need to do it. And you find great joy when you do this is you confront when there is sin. All of us are responsible for that, especially the elders. But uh, Matthew 18 says, if you see somebody, Galatians 6, 1 as well, if you see somebody in your circle of friends in this church that has stumbled into sin, don't run to the elders. Deal with it yourself. You need, you are in the front lines in that situation. Go to that person and lovingly confront them. And notice how I say lovingly confront them because you don't want to lord it over them. First Peter 5 says not to do that. Okay. So when you have a situation of false teachers, one of the things that is essential is confrontation. You must expose them. That's why in Titus 1.9, it says that the elder must know the Bible and be able to exhort and to refute those who contradict. He must be able to refute those who contradict. He knows his Bible well enough to refute those, those false teachers. The, these self-proclaimed Jewish leaders in Crete were wreaking havoc in the church on Crete and in the religious circles there. They were, they were messing up homes and families. It got to that point. All right, next, uh, verses 10 to 16 involves the ministry or the mission of confrontation. Verses 10 to 16. I need to read this because it's somewhat comical and part of it, uh, the reputation these people have, but I need to read this and I'll just make a few comments and then we'll dive into the text and spend a few minutes there. So 10 to 16 of chapter 1, for there are many rebellious men. Now, Now put yourself on the Isle of Crete as I read this. They're empty talkers, they're deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, meaning they were Jewish people, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they shouldn't teach for the sake of sordid gain. They wanted to get rich uh, by means of their religion. Verse 12, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Wow. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. They're self-serving. Now, read this in opposition to the qualifications for the elders. It's a clear, stark contrast. Self-serving, they're deceptive, they're false teachers, they're family destroyers, and they're in it for the money. Okay? And I think we can all agree that that one verse there, they are lazy gluttons, uh, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That comes from 6th century B.C. It's not important you know that, but... A man named uh, Epimenides said that. But another uh, man, and I don't have a date on him, 
I don't even know how to say his name, but he said this, Cretans are always brigands, uh, uh, piratical, like pirates, and unjust. Now, brigands are those who uh, loot, they're robbers, they rob and steal. They're like pirates and they're unjust. I mean, what a reputation for a place. Who wants to move to Crete and have that reputation, you know? Um, but that's, so, so that was a bad reputation culturally, but that worked its way into the churches there, and that's, that's why Paul sent Titus there. And I found the most amazing thing in that whole passage is not their reputation, but at the end it says that they profess to know God. Are you kidding me? You're living like this and you profess to know God? Why bother? I mean, if you're going to sin, then live it up, you know? Crazy. So their deeds proved very clearly that they weren't true Christians, okay? What what the distinction is, right, between true Christians and non-Christians are their deeds. That's what this passage says. Sometimes I think we in the church are afraid to talk about good deeds, but um, there's eight times in the book of Titus that good deeds are mentioned. It's not something that we can jump over real quickly. Uh, good deeds are very important for us as Christians. And, oh, and by the way, you do a lot of good deeds here as a body. We are so thankful. We, we talk about that at our elders' meetings, how busy you are with ministry and, and good deeds. In fact, next Saturday morning, we've got an opportunity for more good deeds. So um, uh, just keep in mind, we will be judged by our deeds. Now, don't think we're judged by, you know, we get to heaven by good works, but we're judged by our deeds. Second Corinthians 5 says, you're judged by your good deeds as a Christian because that reveals your heart. And you jump all the way back to uh, Revelation 20, non-Christians are judged by their deeds because it reveals their heart. So deeds reveal the heart attitude. All right, let's uh, jump into the text and we'll see, see what we can get through today. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Now what a sharp contrast this is. Crazy. It says, but as for you. Now, literally, it's, it's but you. But you, Titus. And the verse here, 2-1, just means this. What is fitting for healthy teaching? We have healthy teaching as a church. When you have really healthy teaching, then how you live must match that teaching. And that's what this passage he was going to talk about. Why does it matter how we live? Look with me at three verses. There's purpose clauses here that explain why it's important that we care about this stuff. In chapter 2, verses 5 and 8 and 10. And I just want to look at this quickly. It's important. At the end of verse 5, it says, we're to live this way, the older men, the older women, younger women. Why? At the end of verse 5, so that the word of God may not be dishonored. Because when you don't live this way, the word of God is dishonored or blasphemed. Verse 8 at the end. Why, do we, why are the young men to live this way in Titus as well? So that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And the last purpose clause of why this is important, verse 10. So that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So it's really important that we pay attention to these things. 
what, what I call this passage, uh, 2 verses 1 to 10, is decorating the doctrine. Uh, the word is cosmeo, cosmetology. You ladies know what that's all about. Let's not go there. But this is about decorating the gospel. You decorate yourselves. You all look great this morning, no doubt. But how do you decorate the gospel? How do you decorate the truth of Scripture? What does that look like when other people see you and you say you're a Christian? Okay? The one thing that I want to say is we are being watched all the time. By those purpose clauses we saw in 5, 8, and 10, we are being watched all the time. Even when you don't think you're being watched, you're being watched. We're all being watched by coworkers, friends, relatives. What do they see in you? We are never off the clock as Christians. Okay, verse 2. It starts with the older men. It says they're to be temperate and dignified, sensible, sound of faith, in love and perseverance. Please, as I go through these descriptions of the different categories of people in the church, do not get the idea, well, that was written 2,000 years ago. It doesn't apply. Uh, that's old-fashioned. Uh, you know, Paul didn't know what he was saying or whatever you might come up with in your mind because if you are willing to write these things off and say they're not applicable, guess what you've just done? You have, by saying that, said, well, maybe the qualifications that Paul gives for elders or pastors in chapter 1 aren't relevant either. Or maybe you go to the extent in chapter 3 where it talks about the gospel so clearly. Maybe the gospel isn't all that Paul said it was either. So you understand it's a slippery slope. If you're, if you're ready to say, well, you know, this is old-fashioned stuff. I mean, we don't have to do this anymore. You know, I had this conversation with a coworker once, and I had, she had a different view of this. I said, be careful where you're going because this is a slippery slope, and you are going to take the authority of Scripture right, right out and make, make your own scripture. So be careful. All right. So the older men. Maybe this is good news. Maybe it's not. The older men are those over 60 years old, most likely. So over 60, you're getting up there. And I like that because of my age. Um, first of all, they are to be temperate. Literally, okay, ready? Wineless abstaining from wine, so that he is clear in thinking. That's the idea. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that the greatest need in the Christian life is for self-discipline. And I think we would all agree with that. We, we all are prone to wander, like the songwriter said. We are prone to wa- wander. Lord, we feel it. When it comes to the use of alcohol, please don't ask the question, why can't I? Instead ask, why should I? We need to listen to the word of God here. The older men are being temperate, not, not, uh, not unclear in his thinking, but he should be clear in his thinking, and so that needs to be something we need to seriously consider and obey. Next is dignified. It means to be reverent, serious. The dignified person isn't frivolous or trivial, superficial. He doesn't laugh at immorality, hello, the workplace, or social gatherings. He doesn't laugh at vulgarity or anything else that is sinful and ungodly. It, it results in respect. When you see somebody at a gathering and there is bad stuff uh, being said, crude jokes, 
you know, you should respect the one who walks away from that for the right reasons. And then third, it says he's to be sensible. And, and by the way, this word is used in describing the elders or pastors. It, it's used to describe everyone in this text. So we're all to be sensible. Nobody gets out of this. Uh, sensible just means to have a saved mind. It means um, that you're curbing one's desires and impulses and describes the man who is self-controlled, self-restrained, and discreet. So we're all to be self-controlled, self-restrained, and discreet. And then it goes into another heading, sound in faith, love and perseverance. I'm going to cover these real quickly. Sound in faith, love and and, uh, perseverance. Uh, First, faith, okay? He's to trust God in in practical matters of life from living so long. He sees God work in his life for many years. He's the older man. He's over 60, and he knows that God is faithful to him. Now, I need to say this. I need to say this. Years do not guarantee maturity. Years do not guarantee maturity. We all know people who might be over 60, but they're not role models for the younger men in the church. So the question is, if you're over 60, are you a mentor to the younger men? Age is no guarantee. In fact, it breaks my heart that many men over 60 are not role models in the idea of uh, faith and love, perseverance and temperance and, uh, dignif- and not dignified and sensible. So age doesn't guarantee anything. Love is the next category here in these bullet points. Um, rather than being, and this is real practical stuff, guys, rather than being more grouchy, which is very common, or hard to live with the older you get, like you know people who get older and they get crusty, they get grouchy. Okay, I see you all looking at, our, you know, at, at one another because we've been there. We know people, and I hope you're not thinking of me when you, you know, chuckle at that, but Let's not become grouchy or, or uh, hard to live with. And we all struggle with these things because we can become very critical right, the older we get in some cases. But um, rather than uh, dropping up, well, okay, so you should be more gracious and compassionate is the idea here with love. The older you get, you should see the faithfulness of God and you should become gracious and compassionate. And the third word is uh, Perseverance. I really, really like this. Uh, The older man should know how to bear up under life's trials with a solid hope in the promises of God. It reminds me of uh, Hebrews 12, where the older men should be running with endurance by fixing their eyes on the Lord Jesus. And to sum it up, to finish well. Finish well. Um, I talked to a favorite musician of mine a few years ago, and I asked him, what can I pray for? As far as, as your ministry goes, he said, and he waited and he waited and he finally said, and I thought he was going to say that I'm faithful to my wife or something like that. He says, that I finish well. Man, that is so, so good. That's a great answer. So, older men, how are we doing? We need to lead by example. That's such a rare thing. Okay. All right, let's uh, jump to older women. Hey, ladies, buckle up. Sorry, ladies, but... Well, this is good news for you, actually. It's the same thing. Probably the older ladies, the, the older women it's talking about here is over 60. So most of you will like that, maybe. 
And that's based on 1 Timothy 5.9, where it talks about who qualifies for aid from the church when they're a widow, and it's those who are over 60, and that's what most commentators think. All right, the older women are to be, ready? Reverent. Root meaning of this word means to be priest-like. It refers to that which is appropriate to holiness. These women were to be like people engaged in sacred duties. They had the demeanor of that called for of priests in the temple. They are, to be, they are to be godly examples of holiness. If you're over 60, are you a godly example of holiness? What is your reputation? Maybe that's a better way of asking it. What is your reputation? Are you a good cook? A good can be a whole list of things. But are you known to be a holy woman? Okay, next, and I kind of chuckle at this when I read not malicious gossips. Is the word malicious really necessary? <laughs> not gossips. But he throws in the word malicious gossip, which is fascinating. And again, when you study a text, you, you uh, really get the richness of the text more than, more than most. The Greek here is diabolos, which means to throw through. When Satan entered the Garden of Eve, of, of, of Eden, I mean, uh, and Adam and Eve were there, he threw between. It means he caused a division in the garden, right, between Adam and Eve. And that's what the word means, not malicious gossips. He threw lies to Eve and created a schism, right, between God and man. The devil's game plan is to wreak havoc in relationships by throwing between, and that's exactly the effect of malicious gossip. So the, the older godly women refuse to listen to, much less propagate, slanderous and uh, demeaning stories about others. That's temptation, and we see that again in 1 Timothy 5 with the younger women. Oh, and by the way, Paul says these things because these are tendencies that each category of people have. He wouldn't say something to the older women that didn't apply. These things apply to you like the teaching to the older men did to us. All right, next, cat, next, um, next thing it says in the text is not enslaved to much wine. It's a dulu in the Greek. means to bring into bondage or to make a slave. Don't be a slave to alcohol. Don't be controlled by wine, which becomes your master. And then it says, teaching what is good. And this, this is something I see here in the church a lot, and I love to see this. Uh, teaching what is good. Um, when the older women come alongside the younger women and teach them. It doesn't have to be a class. In fact, more often than not in this text, the idea is just putting your arm around somebody and coming alongside them and teaching them, exhorting them, admonishing them. Right? Admonish them because they, they uh, need it. You know, younger women... You know, need the encouragement and the admonishing. Um, and just because, by the way, uh, just because if you're an older woman and you didn't have this example as a younger woman, don't say, oh, I'm not qualified. If you know the word of God and you know doctrine, sound doctrine, you are qualified. And think about it this way. A Christian home in Crete was probably a new thing, a whole new concept. So these, these are things that they uh, needed to do Okay, because the culture was so set against this whole kind of thing. All right, so the older women are to be established in these things with the goal that, and let's move on in the text, that they encourage the young women. So as I said, 
The older women are over 60 years old. You are younger women, woman if you're less than 60. Isn't that a great thing? All right, so if you're 59 and a half, you're a younger woman. Um, uh, S. Lewis Johnson said this. He says, I'm told there are seven ages of women. There's first the infant, then the little girl, then the miss, then the young woman, then the young woman, then the young woman, then the young woman. And then it goes on to say that they may encourage, uh, it's only used here in the New Testament. And again, it's a different word uh, than you think to encourage. It's to bring the young women to their senses. Isn't that funny? It sounds really demeaning that the young women have to be brought to their senses. But that's what Paul is teaching to Titus here uh, for the younger women, for the older women to teach the younger women. Paul's saying that you, as older women, are to cause the younger women to be of sound mind and to have self-control. Well, why do you need this teaching? Because there's so much false teaching and erroneous teaching out there. Just look at books. Just listen to Christian radio. Just look at the Internet. There's so many sources of uh, false teaching, false ideas that are very subtle. They come across, I mean, Christian radio has to be safe, right? No. Not necessarily. So we need to use a lot of discernment there. Now, now, the next phrase is really interesting. It says, to love their husbands. The word love is, uh, is not agape. It's fond. To be fond of their husbands. Isn't that funny? Like, wouldn't that be natural? It's a present tense. It's a continuous fondness for their husbands. But in contrast, not to be fond to other men. That's the idea here. Not loving your husband is a sin. You need to love your husband. That's obvious. But the temptation was to love other men. So the question I have is, ladies, are you devoted to your husbands? Are you really devoted to your husbands? Or are you just, like, tolerating them? Okay. And then it says the same idea when it says to love their children. The word is to be fond of their children. It's uh, to be affectionate, um, to be fond of. Why does he have to say this? And I'll be honest with you, the commentaries were useless on this. They were useless. But I did, I did find a comment that really doesn't explain the text, but I find it really funny, and I read it to Misty, and she thought it was good. So if you don't like it, you can blame her. All I could find is this comment. This, this exhortation to love their children, to be fond of their children, is still needed where some married women prefer poodle dogs to their children. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> So we are, you, you uh, older women, are teaching younger women to be devoted to the care and the nurture of their husbands. Um, this is how we marry our teaching with our lifestyle. So keep that in mind, okay? It's going to get a little more where the rubber meets the road coming up here, but uh, this is God's word. It says, uh, to be sensible again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, it just means to have a sense of what's appropriate to you as a Christian and avoiding extremes, young, young women. Uh, self-restraint in your passions and desires. Okay, so, so keep that in mind. So, young women, I'm going to ask you this. What less-than-godly distractions are winning over your attention? There's many temptations. What 
What distractions are vying for your attention? And then it says a few more things. Pure. And this just has to do with moral purity because the temptations to to show infidelity in marriage was rampant, right, in that culture. By the way, whenever you have false teaching, you'll find sex or sexual sins right alongside the false teaching. Always, always. And uh, when it comes to purity, I need to stray out of this text, go to 1 Timothy, and don't turn there, but uh, let's talk about modesty for just a second here. Modesty refers to a healthy sense of shame at saying and uh, uh, saying, or uh, I'm sorry, saying, doing anything, or dressing in any way that would cause a man to lust. Do you like to cause some men to lust, or does it bring a sense of shame to you? That is really important when you evaluate yourself in those terms. And then it says, workers at home. The two Greek words means home and to work, okay? That are, it's a compound word there. Uh, it's a, the uh, oikoi verse. Um, means one devoted to home duties, preoccupi- pre- preoccupied with domestic affairs. This uh, stands in contrast with First Timothy 5, as I mentioned a minute ago, that the younger Ephesian widows were idle and they're going around from house to house. This is the contrast. So are you preoccupied with domestic affairs? Please don't look at me and say, Randy, this is so archaic. You are crazy for teaching this. Do you believe that what God says, what he teaches, is for your good? It's for our best. When we live according to what the word says, you'll find the greatest joy, greatest happiness, and I can testify to that personally. Not that that's important in light of God's word, but that's a fact. Kind is the next word. Young women have to be gentle and considerate and sympathetic. It also means to be good and useful. Useful. Okay. We see the opposite of this in our culture where we see women who are fighting for their rights. I deserve this. I deserve that. And uh, the word kind implies the opposite, just gentle spirit, kindness. And when you see this in a woman, it stands out like a, really in a good way, you know. And then it says, and this is another really unpopular one, but I have to say it. It's in the word of God. Being subject to their own husbands. The word is hupatasso. It means to come under, to live under. Um, it, no way. Now listen, you, you young ladies. It doesn't mean that the husband can lord it over you. It doesn't mean su- superiority of the husband. Think of it this way that when God made us, he made us with different roles and functions. Think of the Trinity. The Son became subject to the Father in the Incarnation. Wives, voluntarily choose to put yourself under the headship of your husband so that the family will function as was originally intended by God. And all the Cretans would see this and it would have an impact for the Gospel. This is radical thinking. I understand that. But alongside this, and I always share this um, when we do marriage counseling or premarital counseling, the husband will have to give an account to God. So, yes, he's got this role that isn't always fun. It's challenging. And the woman, uh, she, she's got her role of, sub, of submission, if you will, but 
he does have to answer to God for that. All right, so why do we live this way? So that the word of God will not be blasphemed. When you live this way, when you don't obey these things, as hard as they may seem, the word of God will be dishonored and blasphemed. Okay. None of us, none of you would say, none of us here would say that you, you want to blaspheme God. No way. None of us would ever think that. But when you're disobeying what God says here in Titus 2, you are blaspheming God. Okay. By the way, always remember that when, when God commands, he also enables. You can do this. You can do this. Please establish your convictions not on the culture around you. So many people look at the culture around them and say, well, I'm going to live my Christian life this way because, you know, it seems to be what most... You know, most Christians are doing, and I'm going to live this way. Like, like we teach the young couples a lot of times, Misty and me, build your convictions on the word of God. Stand for truth. Live for truth. Stand for that, and God will bless. He always does. And that's how you become a good witness. All right, real quickly, i got to move along here. Young, young men, um, less than 60 years old, just the key words I want to pull out of this, is, and I thought of some of you as I was writing this. I'm not going to name names, but I thought of some, some men here that, that are young men. Uh, watch out for volatility. Watch out for arrogance. Watch out for being impulsive. Those, those are the tendencies. Okay? They're, they're to be sensible. Self-control. Walking in the fear of God. And it's funny because it doesn't say a lot about a young man here. It just says that they're to be sensible. And then verse 7, okay, look down your Bible where it says in verse 7, in all things show yourself, Titus, to be an example of good deeds. So he says, okay, now, Paul, you need to be the example. You can't just teach this stuff. You need to be the example. Live it out before them because we all need examples to know how we are to carry these things out. We know the truth, but what does it look like when you try to live it out? Titus is, is uh, called to lead the young men by his example of good deeds. The word example, and I got excited about this fine too. The word example means, in the Greek is tupos. It means to strike, to make an impression, to make a die. What, what impression are you making? What impression are we leaving? And the impression that Titus was to leave, just look at the text there. In verse 7 and 8, well, verse 8, uh, purity in doctrine. If you're going to lead by example, you need to have purity of doctrine. It means, like the, the opposite of the Cretans, you would have an absence of self-seeking and perverse motives. You are to be just pure in your doctrine, sound in your doctrine. But he also said you are to be dignified. Um, this refers to the manner in which the message is taught with a sense of seriousness and reverence. I couldn't help but think of one person when I wrote these notes, and that's Joe. Um, you know, he loved to play pranks. I, I saw him outside this church a lot, play pranks, and he liked to laugh like the rest of us. But when it came to the Word of God, he was ultimately serious. He took it seriously, as we should too. There's no room for variance there. And then it says, sound in speech beyond reproach. 
Watch your speech, Titus, and young men, I think by connection there. Uh, speech that is uncorrupted, uh, accurate, useful, beneficial, where nobody would be able to point the finger at you and say, hmm, I remember that time you said this or you made that comment. Don't allow that to happen. You are being watched, as I said before. Uh, Paul said something similar to uh, Timothy right before he uh, wrote Titus. He says, in 1 Timothy 4, he says, In speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself as an example of those who believe. But then in verse 16 of chapter 4, I really like how he goes on. He says, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. Watch yourself. Okay, People are watching you, so you need to watch yourself. And then the purpose clause number two, so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Isn't it funny? He says, nothing bad to say about us, the pronoun us, meaning when one Christian is affected, we're all affected. That's, that's, that's ridicule on the church, as I said at the beginning, when they can point their finger, and if they can find something that shames us, then they've got the right to say you're, you're a bunch of hypocrites and things like that. But when we walk in a godly way, that builds us up, that shows us our godly behavior in front of them. But us, we're all affected when one is affected. And I really want to read word for word this, this comment I put down here about this purpose clause so that the opponent will be put to shame, right, having nothing bad to say about us. When an opponent makes a rash and unfounded charge against a believer, the obvious and public testimony of that believer's life should be so commonly known that the accuser is embarrassed by his false criticism. And now the last category. You know, verse 9, he talks about bond slaves. About half the Roman Empire were slaves, and we're not going to focus on that. But uh, basically, for our day and age, it applies to workers, to employees. Would be subject to their own masters in everything it says. This is hard when your boss is not a nice person. A lot of us have been there. I know I have. But we don't get a free pass. As much as you want to say, yeah, I have to be subject to my own master when they're nice, that's not what the Bible teaches. Um, it says that to be well-pleasing. Um, well, this can be hard, but there are two subpoints under this that I want to look at. Two primary temptations come to an employee. One is to talk back. It says not, not argumentative, not to talk back or to contradict. It includes sarcastic comments that are said to others about your boss. You know what? That's a temptation. That's a real temptation when you have a hard boss. And again, I confess that I've been there. And the other thing is not, not pilfering. It has to do with petty theft. It literally means uh, to put aside for oneself. Uh, this is a huge temptation where when you're treated poorly by your boss, you might say, well, you know what? The one thing I can do is steal something. You know, something small. And it can be stealing time. It can be leaving early. When your boss leaves early and you say, ah, he or she will never know I've left. I'm just going to sneak out. Nobody will know. That is called pilfering. Paul wrote to the Church of Colossians. He says, not to work merely with eye service. That's a temptation. Do you believe that God is watching or do you believe you're on your own? 
but showing all good faith. It just has to do with the fact, can you be trusted by your boss in all things? Even when they're not there, can you be trusted? It's required of stewards that a man be found faithful, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 4.2. If this is a command to first century slaves, how much more does it apply to us? And why is it so important? So that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all respects, every respect. You and I are expected to make the teaching of God beautiful, attractive, by the distinct way we live. Does your boss see a difference in you because of your faith? That's a question we all have to ask if you have a boss. If you're self-employed, it doesn't apply. But does your boss see a difference in you because of your faith? What does your boss know about Christ by the way you live your life? Well, our view of God determines how we live. Okay? Our profession of faith means nothing unless we take seriously the commands of God to apply these truths. Why should we have a big view of God? Well, as we close, look with me at chapter 3, 4 to 8. Look at what he's done for those he loves. Look at the ultimate purpose at the very end. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. That's the emphasis. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Those are key words. Because he loves us when we couldn't earn our own salvation. By the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Why? So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs. We're going to be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that, the purpose clause, those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. So both faith and works are critical and essential. You can't have one without the other. And I really ask us to think about these words that Paul wrote to Titus and try to apply them to your practical uh, daily lives wherever you find that you are. Let's close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for this teaching in Titus. It's clear. It's not hard to understand. Help us now to apply these difficult truths to our lives wherever you would have us be, whether it's in the home, the workplace, schools, wherever we are, may we live out these truths so that we could have a platform to give the gospel out to those who are watching us. We pray this in Christ's name.